The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Isaiah 9, um, verses 1 to 7. Uh, so we'll just read through that. We've got it up here, maybe, potentially. Um, Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Zaphtali. But in the future, he will bring honour to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time, and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered the oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did in the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of of battle and the bloodied garments of war which will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born, a son has been given to us, and the governor will be upon his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with the justice and righteousness from now and on forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Cool. Well, as I begin, I'd love to just firstly encourage you guys with the reminder that at Christmas time, we celebrate that God came to us. And let's just let that sink in for a moment. God came to us. We call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is with us. He does love us. He cares about us. We are important to him. God came to us. And I was reminded of that this week, not just in God's Word, but just in, in prayer this week. I, actually, on Monday I was reading a book, and this book that I, it's a book that I've been putting off for a while, and I finally picked it up and um, started reading it. And uh, it's hard to explain concisely how this happened or what happened, but it was as if my, my heart and my mind aligned, um, they came into alignment, and I remembered and experienced again just the reality of Emmanuel, the reality of God is with us. As I was reading it, it was like God was answering a bunch of things that have been on my mind for ages. And it was as if God was saying, you dope, I've been with you this whole time. You're an idiot for trying to, for for wondering where, like, just God is with us. God came to us. And that's what we're celebrating here at Christmas time. That's what we're celebrating here with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And it was really kind of that moment that helped me go, oh, that's what this passage is about. And so here's my main point for this morning's sermon. God loves you. He is overjoyed at you. He is coming at you with open arms and a smiling face, and he is relentless. Let me say that again. God loves you. He is overjoyed at you and he is coming towards you he's coming for you with open arms and a smiling face and he is relentless see my goal for this church and i was sharing this with a couple of you this week my goal for this church is that we would grow as disciples 
my, my greatest, my strongest ambition for this church is that every single person who calls this church their home and their family would be growing in their relationship with God, growing in maturity as Christians. If you're a Christian, it means that you are on a journey to know God more. You are on a pilgrimage towards God. And my church, I'm sorry, my, my hope is that as a church, uh, is that we would grow uh, collectively as we do that and help one another on, along that line as we do that, help one another to grow as disciples. And I believe that this passage that Jared just read out will be tremendously helpful for us in this pursuit. And the reason why is because this passage shows us the glory of God and the permission that we have to be satisfied in Him. You have permission to be satisfied in God. And the more satisfying that we find God to be, the less satisfying we'll find the world around us to be. Maybe you're like me and, and the experience your experience of this world is getting such that you're finding the world around you more and more dissatisfying. Like, I don't know about you, but when it comes to Christmas time, like, I love Christmas. I love the lights, I love the carols, I love the eggnog, I love all of it. But then you go to the plaza, and it's just like this consumerism, just purchase, purchase, purchase. Now, I used to love that. I used to love doing that and spending money and doing that at Christmas time. But I went, I took the kids' uh, birthday and Christmas shopping for, for Kirsty the other week, and I, like half an hour in, I was done. And not just like I'm tired, but like, oh, there's something mm, like down here that I'm just not okay with anymore. And if you're like me, and you're kind of feeling dissatisfied with what the world can offer, let it be. Let yourself be dissatisfied with the world. Let that dissatisfaction drive you forward on the pilgrim's journey towards God. We're looking at a, a quite a famous passage in, from an Isaiah 9. If you've got a background in church, you most likely have heard this. If you, if you haven't got a background in church, you might have seen this on one of those church billboards or something, something like that. It has a lot of very important stuff for us to learn. And as I've been studying, studying it this week, there's just been a, a few phrases that have really jumped out at me. And the, and the first phrase is from the beginning of, this, of the text. The second phrase is from the middle of the text. And the third phrase is from the end of the text. And so we're going to focus on those three phrases just to kind of find our way through this passage. So the first phrase is this. The gloom of the distressed land. That's an unhappy sentence, isn't it? That's an unhappy line, like if the, the gloom of the distressed land, it's, a, it's not an uplifting sentence, is it? It's unhappy, but it, it sums up the situation quite well there for God's people at the time. We're not going to go through it in detail. If you, if you want to know where the gloom of this distressed land is recorded in more detail, come and talk to me afterwards. But to sum it up, this is about 200 years after the people of God, after God's nation, the Israelites, uh, had a civil war and split. And so they split with 10 tribes in the, in the north, for, forming the northern kingdom of Israel, and then two tribes in the south, forming the southern kingdom of Judah. And this occurs, this, this is happening around 200 years after that. And, and the political scene around the southern kingdom of Judah was, was manic. There was a lot going on. Basically, they were surrounded by enemies and they were trying to work out who their allies were. Who can we trust? Who, even their, their cousins to the north, the Israelites to the north, even at that stage, they were at war with them. 
Who can we trust? The gloom of the distressed land is a, is a good way to sum up how these people were feeling. Maybe the gloom of the distressed land is how you're feeling right now about what's going on in our world. And to make matters worse, the king of Judah at the time was a guy named Ahaz. And Ahaz was the worst. He did terrible things. He was a horrible, horrible king, and he was completely unwilling to trust God when things were going bad. And so God sent the prophet Isaiah to encourage Ahaz to trust in God, to put his trust in God, but Ahaz wouldn't. He refused. And he instead put his trust into this kingdom, this this superpower called Assyria, which was the, the major political power of the day for his security. The situation was intense. Which is why verse 2 describes it as people walking and living in darkness. Now, if you've ever been in a really dark situation before, like just physically dark, you'll know how oppressive it can be. Like if you can't see anything at all, it's not just that you're kind of blind, it's that you find it hard to breathe. Like darkness can be suffocating. That's kind of what was going on in this situation. These people, they they were suffocating. But this chapter has incredibly good news. Against this darkness, God is going to ignite a great light, and that great light is going to inject incredible hope into a hopeless situation. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. They have seen a great light. Now, often when we're reading the prophets, uh, the prophets will use this tense, which we refer to as the future, sorry, as a prophetic past tense, which means its fulfillment, the fulfillment of this prophecy, it's yet to happen. It's going to happen in the future at some stage, but it's so guaranteed that the prophets can use uh, languages referring to it in the past tense. This is what's going on here. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Now, any kind of light in darkness gives us hope, right? Like if you're having a rough night and you open your eyes, you're trying to sleep and you look and it feels really dark, just the blinking of the, of the smoke detector alarm can, can give you hope at that moment. But we're not talking about a small little LED light here. We're talking about a great sudden light for these people walking in darkness. On Thursday night, I went down to Brisbane to catch up with some mates, and as we left the restaurant, it was a storm going on at the time, as we left the restaurant, a huge bolt of lightning hit a light post about 100 meters away from us. And it was me and these other mates, and three other mates, and we, we regard ourselves as pretty tough guys, but we screamed. And there was like 100 other people who were, who were at, the, at, the, at the eatery at the time, they were eating food, and it just people screamed. Because uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't just bright, it wasn't just like one bang, it was like that, you know lightning when it's close and you can kind of, you can count the seconds between when it starts and finishes, like, bah! like it was that, oh, and we, you felt it down here, like it was like, oh, we felt, oh, it wasn't great. And like, it felt to reverberate through our limbs and through our fingers, and we were all just kind of jittery, and everyone's looking at each other like, whoa, that's, that, that just happened, and there's like these sparks coming off the, the light post. And it was a great light. Like we, t- Ten minutes later, we were still a little bit shaky. We were like, you guys okay? We're good, we're good, we're good. But it was like a great light. And you know, I had this thought, and this is not related to the sermon, but um, I had this thought, like... That's one, that's like, I don't know how, like half a second, a quarter of a second of a big lightning bolt, right? And then the glory of God at the second coming of Christ is going to terrify people such that that's going to look like, 
a flashlight. <laughs> it's going to look like a little torch. And that scared me a bit. It's not in my notes. Um, <clears throat> but this is the kind of light that the suddenness and the brightness of this great bewildering light is. This light that Isaiah talks about it gives hope to these people who are walking in darkness. So who are these people? Who are the people that Isaiah is talking to? Well, as I've been saying, Isaiah is prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah, the people there in that situation with their king Ahaz. That's his audience. <clears throat> but in his first opening verses, he gives these geographical locations, these geographical details, which are all in the northern kingdom of Israel. So we should pay attention. He talks about the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, the land east of the Jordan and Galilee. That's not in the southern kingdom of Judah. That's in the northern kingdom of Israel. So why does he bring these places up? Well, if you look at the map of this region, those places are, are actually form a, a gateway. That region of Galilee forms a gateway for other nations. See, whenever foreign armies would march upon God's people in Israel, they had to pass through Naphtali, Zebulun, and the region of Galilee. Those regions were the first to experience the brunt, the first to experience the foreign invasion. They were the, the places that experienced defeat first. They were the places that experienced slavery first. These were the places that experienced exile first. This was a dark place. They experienced darkness like the rest of the nation didn't. When international threats came knocking at Israel's door, Galilee, Zebulun, Naphtali, they were the door. They were the first to experience that brutality. Now, something that is really cool here is that if you look over at the Gospels, those are the places that Jesus went to first. Matthew 4 tells us that when Jesus began his ministry after his temptation in the desert, he withdrew into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, the Sea of Galilee, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, I've never made those connections before until this week when I was studying God's Word. I was like, that's incredible. Where God's people had experienced the toughest darkness, where they were the first to, to bear the brunt of international turmoil, they were also the first to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. They were the first people to ever hear Jesus say the words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's wonderful, right? This is, that's where, where, where it's the darkest place in God's people, for God's uh, geographical people. Jesus goes there first. So if I could paraphrase these verses a bit, things have been pretty bad. Things have been real bad, actually. But they won't always be like this. Where the darkness has been the strongest, terrific light will come. And then verses 3 and 4 tell us that this terrific light going to bring tremendous joy. It's the kind of joy you feel when you get a pay rise. It's the kind of joy you feel at the end of the year when you get a Christmas bonus. It's the kind of joy that you'd see in a locker room after the grand final, after they win. That's the kind of joy that he's talking about here. God is going to destroy the things that caused his people darkness. He's going to destroy the things that oppressed his people and then he's going to destroy conflict itself. See, this isn't just an insight into the future of the people of Judah. This is an insight into the future for all of God's people. 
There is going to come a time at the second uh, coming of Jesus Christ where God will destroy the things that have caused darkness in your life. If your faith is in Jesus, then your future is incredibly bright. You can look forward to a day when all the sad and horrible things of your life will come untrue. They won't just be in the past. They'll come untrue. And that place which we Christians call heaven, that will be characterized by a lack of darkness. You see, God isn't just going to have victory over the conflict over evil. He's not just going to end evil. He's also going to end conflict. This is what is meant by the line, you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor. God is going to destroy conflict. And when God's people enter that place, Enter heaven, stepping into all that we've been promised because of Jesus Christ. We'll look around and say, yeah, I had nothing to do with this. I, I can't claim credit for this. That's the general gist of this passage. God's people are rescued by God and he's the one who does it, not us. That's, what's refer- that's what is meant by that reference to Midian. That, that reference is a, a reference to the battle that uh, God's people had with Midian. Uh, God's people, this is back in Judges, God's people at that stage were led by Gideon. And Gideon was a bit of a coward. And Gideon was facing ridiculous odds against, against the Midianites. And, and it was, it was, he had about 32,000 men and they were completely outnumbered. And then just before the battle, God thinned out Gideon's army from about 32,000 down to about 300 men. So that those people, those soldiers, not even Gideon himself, could claim that they were the ones who got, got victory that day. This is what this is saying. The bright light which brings great joy and rescues people from darkness, is the light of God. God is the one who will rescue his people, and no one will be able to claim credit for it. God is the one responsible for the victory of God. This is why, and this is why we were saying last week, God alone should be our hope. He is the only one who can truly rescue us from the gloom of darkness. Friends, if your hope is, in, is on something here on earth, whether it's in the government, whether it's in another person, whether it's in a pay rise or consuming more things, you're going to be utterly disappointed and you'll never approach the God of grace. Eugene Peterson, the theologian, puts it like this. He says, a person has to get fed up with the ways of the world before he, before she, acquires an appetite for the world of grace. We need to get fed up with the things this world can give us, and that is going to drive us forward to the throne room of grace. The second phrase that stands out to me here is the two words for us, or to us. After talking about the great light that will shine in the darkness, Isaiah then explains what this great light will be. He tells us it's a person. For us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And I'm fascinated by that turn of phrase, for us, to us. Because even though, we just, as we just said, no one's going to be able to claim responsibility, no one's going to be able to claim credit for the great victory that God is going to have over darkness once and for all. Not a single person in this room, not a single person on earth is going to be able to say, yeah, I contributed something to that. 
And yet, God's people are still the fortunate recipients of God's victory. This is the way that Ray Ortland puts it. He says, we aren't there for the actual battle. We just show up to the field of battle afterwards and we celebrate. It's for us that a child is born. It's to us that a son is given. We get to just show up and be like, yeah, this is, this is awesome. We've, having, and having done nothing of it ourselves. I'll be honest with you. In my sinful heart, I am often very unwilling to hear this. I find that my heart is so often resistant to accepting and receiving the love of God. And I think it's because I worry that if God really actually saw me and saw the deep and dark recesses of my heart, there's just no way that he could ever love me. And I think that for so many of us, this is where we find ourselves, which is why we need to do the hard work of actually pressing the love of God down into our hearts. For so many of us, there is this springy resistance in our hearts to the love of God. And I want to impress upon you again that God loves you. God is pursuing you. He wants you. He wants to save you, and he is relentless in doing so. You need to hear that. And you need to memorize that. You need to write that down. You need to, you need to repeat that to yourself this week. Every single time you, you're pushing the love of God into your heart and saying, no, God loves me, God loves me, even what the devil says against us and what we might say about ourselves, we need to remember the absolute truth of truth is that God loves us and we need to push that down into our hearts and even though our hearts might push it out like a spring bouncing out, go, no, that's going in there and we've got to do that over and over and over again. I'm struck in this passage by just how important we are to God. For us, a son is given. To us, a child will be born. I love giving gifts. Uh, you might be familiar with the whole five love languages thing. Um, I don't put heaps of stock into that stuff, but I do find it helpful. And, and if I was to classify my, find myself somewhere there, I'm a gift giver. I just love doing that. That's how I love to show love to people. Um, unfortunately, my wife is not a gift receiver. She doesn't care less about that stuff. Um, that's okay. We, we work that stuff out. But when you give a gift, what you do if you, if you love the person, I've got to be careful as I say that, just in case some of you don't do this. Um, here's what I do. I listen carefully to my wife all year about the things that she needs, about the things that she wants. I've got a little note on my phone. It's a locked note so she can't read it. Uh, and it's just a list of things that I write down and try and remember that she needs. And so she'll say something that she needs this or she needs that or how cool would it be if we had this or whatever and I see if I can do it. And then when it comes around time for her birthday and Christmas each year, I think about it, go back to that list. Does this still apply? Maybe not. Maybe we've already got it. Maybe, maybe she's moved on. I'll do a little bit of investigating research and then I'll go and get the gift. Like I think about it and I prepare it and I plan it out and I get excited for it and then I go and get it and it's her birthday this Thursday and I'll let you know how it goes on Sunday. Um, Last year on Boxing Day, I had to return to the shops to return some items. So, um, and I'm not joking. Uh, that was a that was a blowout. Um, I've learned my lesson. Less is more. Okay, good. Um, so, God's gift to us is His Son Jesus Christ. 
God knows what we need. God knows how great our need is. And so from before the beginning of time, he and the Son and the Spirit prepared this gift for us. Paul writes this in Ephesians 1. For he, that's God, chose us in him, that's Christ, before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in love before him. That's the experience of salvation in Christ. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the Beloved One. God's gift, which is is his amazing grace to us in his Son, Jesus Christ, is a gift that he carefully planned a gift that he prepared for, a gift that cost him everything. And then when the time was right, he lavished his glorious grace upon us in Jesus Christ. It's the perfect gift. It is freely given. It cost him everything. And my name's on the tag. Like there's a present under the tree and my name's on the tag. And the invitation for you this morning is to come and look at the present and see if your name's on that tag. And if you start opening that present, then it's yours. This is the wonderful gift of God to us. He gave us his son. So let's understand this gift a bit more. Let's understand this son a bit more. We're firstly told that about what he will do, what he will be responsible for. Isaiah tells us that the government will be on his shoulders. Now this would have been like bright crisp, fresh air to those people living in darkness, suffocating in darkness. When God sends his son, the government will be on his shoulders. God's kingdom, which Jesus came to establish, is a realm or a dominion wherever God is in charge. It has no geographical location or limits. It's simply where God's people bow the knee to him. And when it says that the government will be on the shoulders of this child, we're being told that this child, this this son of his, will bear that responsibility. The good news, sorry, this is good news because all governments will be answerable to God. Any injustice and any morally reprehensible act of a government and every individual will face the perfect and righteous judge. And my hope is that this will give us the greatest confidence in our God. God is a perfect judge. And every person and every institution and every government will be held to account for their sin. The highest levels of the powers that be are not higher than God. They are on his shoulders. So, what will be the character of this child? We're told that his name shall be called the Wonderful Counselor. This child would be a sage, full of infinite wisdom and clever strategy. But more than that, his wisdom won't just be great, it will be wonderful. It's talking about Jesus here, obviously, and Jesus is not just wise, he is kind in his cleverness, he is kind in his wisdom. This child to be born would be a wonderful counselor, wise beyond measure, kind beyond measure. 
His name shall be called the Mighty God. This child would be strong, easily defeating his enemies. He's not just a child, he's God. See, Jesus isn't like God. Jesus isn't similar to God. Jesus is God. This is the wonder of wonders of the incarnation that we're celebrating here, that the God who created the deepest oceans and the weird animals that live down there, and the God who created the galaxies and the stars and and all that is contained in them, the white-hot, huge, massive, shining stars, but this week I was looking at uh, our kids were, un- were wondering how big the sun is and compared to the earth and all those kind of things. So we got, found one of those videos where it shows the size of the earth and then it zooms out and shows the size of the sun and the earth is like a dot. And then it shows the, the, and the size of, of a bigger star than the sun and then the sun turns, eventually turns into a dot and you can't see it anymore. And then there's another star that turns that star into a dot and it just goes on and on and you, your mind starts to bend and things like... Three billion light years starts to mean nothing to you anymore. You're like, that's just words, that's just jibber-jabber to me because I just, my mind can't get around that. And the God who created them by his word, the God who created them by his word, came to us as a baby, vulnerable, helpless, needing to be fed by his mother, needing to be changed, needing to be carried around needing to be protected and taken care of. That's the strength of it. That's the measure of the strength of our God. It's not weakness. It's him subverting his strength to become vulnerable to save us, to become like us and to put on flesh and become like us, to, to serve us like that. This child will be called the Everlasting Father, Loving us in the ways that only a father could. I don't know what your experience is of fatherhood, whether you had a father who was present or not. When it tells us that he's the everlasting father, he's the father who, who, is, who loves us perfectly. He loves us with a love that is only possible from an eternal father. Something that is increasingly becoming one of my favorite things that Jesus ever said was uh, to his disciples the night before he was killed. In John 14, he says, and I'm just paraphrasing, my father's house has heaps of rooms and I'm going there to get your room ready because I want you to live with me forever. That's the kind of love that Christ has for us. That's the kind of love that God our Father has for us. I want you to come and live with me forever. So I'm going to go get your room ready. When you're a kid, and I've tested this, it was the true when I was a kid, it's true for my kids now, there's a certain question that a kid can be asked by their friends. And this question lifts a child up out of whatever mire they're in. It is the question that ends all questions is the question that every child wants to be asked by one of their friends. It's this question. You want to come to my house to play? That there is like gold to a child. That's just like, oh my goodness, yes. Like, yes, I was just waiting for someone to ask. Like, even if it's like nine o'clock at night, they're like, can we? Like, no, the answer is no. You can't go and play at their house. It's just, it's, but that's what kids want to hear. And, and this, the, 
the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the mighty God, the wonderful Counselor, wants us to come to his house to play. Not for an afternoon, not just for a sleepover, but forever. That's the, that's the love that Christ has for us. The Prince of Peace, this child we call the Prince of Peace, he would establish peace where peace was impossible. Jesus was sent by God and he forged peace between us and God so that we now have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that peace with God that we have forges peace between one another in ways that are limitless. Peace between brothers, peace between sisters, peace amongst family, peace amongst enemies. If your God is the Prince of Peace, then that should have an incredible bearing on your life. To us, a child is born. Amazing stuff. The third phrase that stands out here is the last one. The very last one. In his commentary on Isaiah, Ray Ortland says that this line here is the most important in this whole passage. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Now, this last verse, uh, the first part of this last verse, it's been talking about the never-ending expansion of God's kingdom. It's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and it will never end. And those who trust in Jesus will be saved from their sins, and they'll get to share with Jesus in the final establishment of his kingdom at his second coming. We'll get to enter God's kingdom, get to share in, the, the, in God's kingdom forever. And salvation is the forgiveness of sins at the cost of Jesus' life. Salvation is, is, is Jesus laying down his life for us and us putting our faith in him, saying, I've got no hope of saving myself. I've got no hope of, of pulling myself up by my bootstraps. I've got no hope, hope of actually being a better person or a good person in order to be acceptable before God. I need Jesus to take away my sin. And if I, if I don't have Jesus, then I, I don't get him at all. And then as a result of that... I am brought into a harmonious and peace-filled relationship with God that cannot be destroyed. I am reconciled with God. I have a relationship with God, which is what all of this is about. And by this, I mean everything, right? Our church this morning, this world, it's us having a relationship with God. We get a shadow of that, in, of this relationship in this life now, but there will come a day where we will see God face to face and the union with God through Christ by the power of the Spirit will be perfected for us. We'll see God face to face and we won't be incinerated by His holiness because we will have been made holy perfectly by Jesus Christ because that is true of us now. And then we read this line, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. See, see, what's wonderful here is that it's not just that God accomplishes it. Like Isaiah could have said, and God will accomplish this, and we will go, wow, that's incredible. Isn't God amazing? But it's not just that. It's the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. It's done out of his zeal. Zeal is passion. Zeal is enthusiasm. And if it's, if it's the zeal of God, then it is perfect and unmatched passion, perfect and unmatched enthusiasm, pure enthusiasm. So what is God passionate about? What is God enthusiastic to do? What is God enthusiastic about? It's about our salvation. He's passionate, he's zealous, he's enthusiastic about our salvation because this is what brings him glory. 
This is why the main point from today is that God loves you. He is overjoyed at you. He is coming for you with open arms and a smiling face. And he is relentless in that pursuit because that pursuit brings him glory. We have such a great need for God, such a high need for God. We fall so far short of him. And yet even greater than our sin is God's enthusiasm to save us. And that there is the assurance, all the assurance that we need for our salvation. Like if, you're, if, you're, if you sometimes go through paths where you're not sure how God thinks of you, you're worried that God is, is fed up with you, he's kind of done with you, like he's given you so many chances and you keep stuffing up over and over again, you feel like an embarrassed person, you feel embarrassed, you feel like a ridiculous person, you're full of shame, you're just like, ugh, how could God ever have this much patience for me? Remember this line, the zeal of the Lord accomplishes this. The zeal of the Lord, his enthusiasm for you. Tim Keller says it this way, the great basis for Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but how unshakably his heart is set on us. That's your assurance. That that's, should help you sleep at night. That should cause your heart to be filled with peace. That's what we must be pressing down into our hearts over and over again, that God's heart is unshakably set on us. The zeal of the Lord of armies is the, one, is the thing that accomplishes our salvation. He's so excited to save you. He's, he's genuinely like, he's jazzed up about saving you. He's so pumped about it. So how do we do that? How do we press the love of God down into our heart? How do we do that? How do we actually get there? Well, the answer for that is actually back in Matthew 4, which we looked at at the beginning. Isaiah 9, as we've been reading it, is a prophecy about a time when the people of Zebulun, Naphtali, and Galilee would see a great light. And then in Matthew chapter 4, we see the fulfillment of that prophecy take place. It's the account of that actually happening. Like we said, this is the region where Jesus first began his ministry, and he does so with this word, repent. He begins his ministry with the word, repent. Matthew 4, 17, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that word, repent, often carries a lot of baggage. But if I can try and simplify it without weakening it, we could understand it to mean a realization that the world can no longer satisfy us. It's this realization like, oh, this, the things that I've hoped in, the career, the, the financial gain, the relationships, the whatever it is, the lifestyle, whatever it is that I've put my hope in, those things can't actually satisfy me anymore. And then from that frame of mind, repentance is, a resol- is the resolution to set your mind and heart on the God who can satisfy you. Repentance is the, real, is, the, is the resolution to set your mind on the God who satisfies us. To quote Eugene Peterson again, he says, To repent is a decision. It is a deciding that you've been wrong in supposing that you could manage your own life and be your own God. It is a deciding that you were wrong in thinking that you had or could get the strength, education, and training to make it on your own. 
It is a deciding that you have been told a pack of lies about yourself and your neighbors and your world. And it is a deciding that God in Jesus Christ is telling you the truth. Repentance is a decision to follow Jesus Christ and become his pilgrim in the path of peace. And the invitation for each of us today is to look at the gloom of the world around us. I'm not just talking about the pandemic and the decisions that are being made about it, but look past those things to the gloom of the darkness of the worldly things that we've trusted in. Look past the things in the world, look past the gloom of the darkness of the worldly things that we believe can rescue us from them. Look at the gloom of the darkness of trying to get more money or some kind of standard of life. Look at the gloom of the darkness of trying to control your situation. Look at the gloom of the darkness of trying to win the approval of others. Look at the gloom of the darkness of trying to get power over others. Now, look at the bright light of Christ who loves you, who is overjoyed at you, who is coming towards you with open arms and a smiling face and who is relentless for you. And repent. Turn to him because his kingdom of, the kingdom of heaven is for you and I. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.